Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the official Tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I am your host, Kamal Murray, and we are here with one of the most popular, uh, the most thoughtful tennis writers in the game, Chris Cleary. Uh, One of the few that I follow. Uh, and one of the ones that I look up to because the questions are always thoughtful, relevant, uh, on time. And you don't, you never get the sense that he's trying to hang you. He's just trying to get to know you. So, Chris, welcome to the show. And uh, I start off by saying thank you for being you over the past seven years. You're one of the guys that sort of welcomed me to the tour uh, and, you know, allowed me to sort of, you know, speak freely with you without you trying to hang me. Uh, so I welcome. Hey, thank you, Kamal, for having me. And I, I remember catching your eye at the French Open, I think, out by the old bull ring, court number one. I think you were working with Taylor at that time, right, Townsend, if I'm not court mistaken? Court one. Now, now yeah. that's the place where we take our rackets to get strong, but that was the bull ring. Long time ago, and uh, I remember catching your eye, and you, you definitely had a, had a twinkle in your eye about being at Roland Garros and in that setting and, and making your mark. And I got to say, this is a little strange for me to be on the other end of this conversation. Usually I'm the one asking all the questions. So <laughs> yeah, it'll be a different situation. Well, well, now you'll see how it feels like, you know, there's been, a lot, <laughs> uh, there's been a lot of conversation lately about interviewing and questions and safe spaces to talk and to ask questions and what type of questions are off limits. So now you'll, you'll get a little bit of the other side. All right. I trust you. Be kind, man. There we go. Right. In, in oh, the new I'm spirit a, of tennis. I'm a gentle soul, man. I coach girls for a living. So I'm a gentle soul. <laughs> So I want to ask you, because you got a book coming out um, about, you know, obviously one of the guys that's mentioned as one of the greatest. Um, there's an ongoing debate, uh, and it's about Roger Federer. And so I'm curious as to all the people you could have written about. Uh, and we talk about Roland Garros, right? You could have written about Rafa. Uh, you could have written about Novak, who was an interesting personality, right, and got multiple mm-hmm. sides and could have, could have made for a very controversial book. But you chose probably the least controversial of the three uh, to write about Roger Federer. So why, why did you decide to write about him in particular? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I got to say that it's a whole bunch of things that came together. One is timing, um, in the sense that I think Roger is very, very close to the end of his career. And when I started working on this book, when I decided to do it, um, I sensed after he lost the Wimbledon final to Novak in 2019 that the end was approaching. And I thought the main body of work for Roger was finished. And so I said, you know, I never wanted to write the book too early or a book like this too early. I don't think that's a service to anybody, but I sensed that it was coming to the point where you could really try to sum up what he's done, follow his process and really get into it. And I had had so much access through the New York times. It's not me and me and my great personality. It's the New York times that gets the door open you know, to Roger over the years, beginning as early as 2001 and I have interviewed him more than 20 times, you know, one-on-one in all parts of the world and all kinds of places and all kinds of modes of transport come out. That's what the journalists do. They go up on the car or the train or the bus and they get the athlete on the move, which seems to be the way it works. 
Well, I've done a lot of transport interviews with Roger over the years and a lot of sort of sit down at, at a meal. So I feel, I felt like I've been doing this a long time. I've been covering tennis since the late eighties. My first tournaments were at the San Diego WTA event back in 87, 88. People like Stephanie Rahe were playing at that time. So it's just a long time back. And Ted Tingling, the great WTA ambassador and dress designer was still in the, in the players lounges at that time running around. So it was a really different era, but I really, um, felt like I wanted to use this opportunity to look at the sport as a whole and look at sort of my, a little bit of my journey, but it's not about me, but it's a little bit of my journey in there as well. And the other thing about it is the book, even though it's called the master, the, the long run and beautiful game of Roger Federer, the book is really, if you read it about the big three and about this era in men's tennis, there's a lot of Rafa in it. There's a lot of Novak in it. And I tried to, I thought it was really important for people who come to this subject who maybe know about Roger Federer a little bit or are casual fans or are sports fans. And they're just curious about a great athlete that they'd be able to understand the key rivalries, not just from a tennis perspective, but from a personality and human perspective. So I really tried to use the book as a way to get inside the origin story of Novak and the origin story of Rafa in particular, and their whole chapters devoted you know, to how they developed into great players. And I also, because of my, my job, I've had really amazing access to Novak and to Rafa over the years too. I mean, so I really wanted to bring all that into one book. Roger is, is the thread, if you will, because his career, I think, is close to the end. And he's the one I, I've known journalistically the best. And I tried to use it that way. And that's probably why it's, it's over 400 pages. It kind of lands with a thud when it comes oh, to Amazon. <laughs> you, better get, you better have Amazon Prime because trying to ship that thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly it. Exactly it. So that's, you know, I think that's all those are the main reasons. And, you know, also... These things, when you as a writer, you know, as a coach, if you hire on with somebody, you kind of got to like them because you're going to be with them 24-7 or 18-7 or 16-7 for a long time. 38-7. Okay, there you go. Whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Definitely all the way saturation point will, is in danger. And so as a, as a journalist and a writer, I cover tennis day by day for many, many years. Who did I want to spend a year really digging into his career and understanding the process better? And to be honest, I have, you know, as journalistic professional respect for the way Roger has conducted himself and the way he's progressed and the way he has structured things in his life. And I wanted to know more about it. So you've obviously had access to all three. And a lot of people don't have that, right? A lot of people claim to know all three, right? And you really don't. So what do you think the difference is between the three? And I'm only asking because you talked about you had access to all three. You talk about all three in the book. What would you say from a personality standpoint? Like we all can watch and know how they play tennis. And we know, you know, Novak's more of a grinder, counterpuncher, that kind of thing. We know Rafa, he's great on clay and vulnerable other places. But uh, what, what personality standpoint, what would you give the audience the differences between the three of them? That's a great question. And, you know, the thing is, I'm not going to presume to know what happens in their living rooms or when they're all, all the lights are really off and they're really off stage. You know, we're never going to see that. And, you know, even people that know them that aren't journalists aren't going to necessarily see that. All I can tell you is from my own prism, from having interviewed them all a lot and spent time with them one-on-one, -on -one, you know, for lengthy periods of time over a number of years. I mean, I really got to interview Rafa the night that he won his first French Open. I was there at the party at the, tour, at the Eiffel Tower afterward. And ended up in a van with him and his family after he won his second. So I've had a lot of looks at the, at these guys in that kind of a setting. And I, the inter, there, there are a couple of things that come to mind. One is Roger is by nature, I think a chameleon. 
He's a guy who adapts to his environment and adapts to whoever he's in front of. And he's very curious. So it's not an interview in a traditional sense with Roger. It's kind of a uh, interchange. It might start off a little bit like, you know, a couple of questions, but then it quickly becomes more of a debate and interchange. And, and he's very animated and he'll go off much more animated than he is when you see him on the tennis court. He's very spontaneous and he'll riff in English and doesn't always scan you know, grammatically, but he just goes off and lets, <laughs> lets it roll very much like that. And so, but he's comfortable in English. That was really his first language. His mom from South Africa and spoke it to him in the cradle, basically. And so that's, there's that kind of spontaneity and exuberance. Rafa is more of a guy to me who has a code that he is defending in his own mind and in, and, and you're in front of you as well, a lot of the time. So whatever you bring to him, and I was fortunate in the early years, my Spanish was a lot better then than it is now. I, I used to live in Sevilla in Southern Spain for quite a while. So my early interviews with Rafa were all in Spanish. And he has a lot of dignity and a lot of gravitas. He even did as a young man. I mean, he's, he almost feels like he would be a leader of, of a group, no matter what he was doing. He has that kind of presence about him, physical and everything else. And he's very, um, almost moralistic, but not in a bad way. Somebody who really has a code. And you can almost see that when he plays tennis. There's a real structure to each point-by-point -point basis. He will not talk down an opponent. He will not take anything for granted. And in an interview, it's sort of the same way. He takes your questions very seriously. He's not cracking jokes. Roger will crack quite a few jokes if you get, get him going and he likes to laugh. Rafa's more taking the thing on a serious level and he's committing to a, let's not call it point by point, but question by question intensity. So it's sort of that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That's different. And Novak is in my, I said this in the book, he is the most fascinating of them all, of those three for sure. I think about any, of any tennis player playing today in many ways. I'd maybe pick Serena ahead of that, but, but Novak is right up there. And it's because the guy is just, he's a seeker. He's a quester. He is looking all the time to change something, tweak something, find a little edge, find a new thing he's going to learn about that's going to make him a better person or a deeper person or whatever it is. And so mm -hmm. you sense all that. But Novak's not going to be asking you a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. Novak's going to be taking the opportunity that you present to you know, elaborate on what he's believing at the moment, where he is, what he's what's on his mind, what he's doing. I did an interview with him in Monte Carlo, I think at the end of 2019, not long before the pandemic and all that. And um, I flew all the way to Monaco on short notice, went up to a room where we met, sat down, said hello. And before I could even ask a question, he starts talking. I've been wanting to talk about this with you. I was looking forward to this. And he literally went Kamau for 15 minutes without stopping about what he was trying to get across. I've never had an athlete do that before. And it wasn't disagreeable. It was interesting and revealing in some ways, perhaps. But I think it just tells you that he has, he's always trying to find a way to make sense of his world. And his world is shifting. He's never, he's restless, restless. Mm. And I wouldn't call Roger or, or Rafa restless. 100%. Anyway, there you go. So I would say in my, in my experience, I think, you know, you talk about the personalities on the court, you talk about the per personalities off the court. And you know, I think about how people are as the way that they treat you and the way they greet you, right? You know, like I said, tennis is like a traveling circus and you're with these people 38 weeks a year uh, sometimes. And so for Roger, I would say he's always the same and he's always appropriate. Like if he, if he saw you last week, he'd give you the same, you know, sort of uh, greeting as if he saw you, he haven't seen you for 16 weeks, never over the top, 
never like, oh, you know, you see like Monfils Francis, if you haven't seen you in six months, it's going to be like, man, I missed you, buddy. Roger's never like that. He's always just the same. Hmm. To me, Rafa is very shy. I feel like when you when he greets you, there is a shyness about him where he'll let you lead the conversation, right? He'll let you lead, you know, are you going to be excited? Because if you're excited, I'm excited. Or if you're not excited, I'm not, I'm not going to be excited. Right? I feel like he lets you lead the interaction. And I think Novak is more on his own terms. If he's in his zone, he's going to give you a cold greeting. If he's not in his zone, he'll stand there and BS with you for a little while. So I feel like it's on his own terms. But that would be, you know, from someone distant, uh, if you're interviewing him uh, or if you're, you know, just seeing them on the site, those would be the major differences, I think, between the three. And it shows the differences in their personalities. That's really um, interesting. And I think you're right. I think it shows when you're as a journalist, obviously these guys, as much, no matter how much they know you, they still know that, you know, you're on the record. You're going to, these things could be out in the public. So you're going to have a different sort of feeling no matter how comfortable you feel than if you're talking to Kamau, you're part of the coaching community and and you're there behind the scenes. So yeah, that's, that's, I think that's really instructive and really interesting. And I'm sure that's true. Absolutely. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. So, since you obviously you know, been writing about them for a long time. Um, when you think about, and now that I, you know, sort of work for TC, we always have this debate on who's the greatest, right, of the three. I think you chose, you know, Roger, because you seem to have an affinity towards him. And like you said, you feel like the end was near, right? Where Rafa and Novak, they clearly have some more, some more life left. But what do you think, what are the areas in which you say this person is going to be the greatest because of X, Y, and Z? You know, mm-hmm. is Novak going to be the greatest just because he's probably going to surpass both of them in terms of Grand Slam titles, right? Or is Roger the greatest because of his grace, right, and his personality and his warmth uh, and how he treats people? Or is it going to be Rafa? I mean, Rafa had like a little bit of slump there, you know, and Rafa really is dominated on one surface. Um, I mean, you know, not that Federer doesn't have his hold on clay. He clearly got a hold in the game for clay. But what 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 sort of, you know, barometers are you going to put on who's the greatest? Well, I don't know if you and I agree on this to begin with, but for me, there is no goat in tennis just because you can't, especially in the men's game, because the, there were just so many situations where the guys who were great early on turned pro, no longer were able to get into the mix in the Grand Slams, which have become the big barometer for greatness now. And then guys like, you know, Borg played the Australian Open one time. Um, come on. I mean, I compared to close to 20 for these guys that are playing today. Right. There's a lot more bites at the apple there to try to get the greatness apple. And I think, you know, it's, um, but I think of course, to compare them, these guys that are playing now who are tremendous players and have set the bar for each other. Absolutely. Fair game. hundred percent to look at them. And, and maybe starting from Sampras when guys started to play all these tournaments regularly from say 1990 on, it's a great debate. And these guys I think are the three best in that period. But for me, you know, the greatest is, is a strange word because like you said, or like you alluded to, it could mean things that are not necessarily between the lines. It can mean things like what dimension do you bring to the sport? How much pleasure and how many goosebumps did you give fans in the stands for how long? 
how much business did you bring to the sport? So if you're going to do that, start looking at that, then Roger's got to be probably still in the lead, I would say, just based on the overall body of work, the impact across all dimensions in the sport and beyond the sport. Yeah, I mean, he's, I think, the guy setting the mark. If you're talking about inside the lines, I have to go with Novak. Already, even though they're still all at 20, just based on, I think the number one record is a very important record, and it's from 1973 on. Novak has every day widening his lead. He is pretty far out in front already now. Masters 1000s, the second tier of the game. Um, he has won all of those tournaments, not once, but twice. Roger and Rafa haven't done that. He is going to have a shot at the Grand Slam here in a couple of weeks' time. We'll see if he gets there. But just to have that shot, Roger and Rafa never had a shot at a true Grand Slam. And I think his ability, he had that one dip, obviously, in 17-18. But really, consistent achievement with his style of play, which is so elastic. And you as a coach know, I mean, a lot of guys would get hurt fast playing the way he plays. Because of his flexibility, elasticity, and his uh, training methods, he's been able to last. So I just think, in terms of just the pure tennis achievement, Novak's number one for me. And the craziest, unmatchable achievement of all three of them is not Roger or Rafa. I mean, or, or Novak, it's Rafa. 13 French Opens. I mean, I'm sorry. Give him the trophy and give him the second trophy and the third. Let's give it all to him. Give him right. the place. Right. No one's, I don't know what you think. I'd be curious. I don't think anybody will ever do that. I really don't think that record will be achievable for anybody. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think they'll do it. And I actually think that of, of the people in the top 10, they almost concede. You know, if, if Rafa's in the French Open, they just, you know, say it's Rafa's tournament to lose. Yeah. Um, and I think you saw a little bit with that with Serene on the women's side, but not as much. Right now, it's sort of anyone's game now. But even at Rafa's age, it's still his tournaments lose if he shows up to any clay court tournament. So let me ask you this, Dan. This is a hard one. You stated there is no good on the men's side. On the women's side, if you compare now outside the lines, right, it's a totally different era from, let us say, Billie Jean King to Serena Williams. Billie Jean King was very intentionally trying to move the game forward, right? And Serena Williams moved the game forward by leaps and bounds unintentionally, right, without sort of, staying there and necessarily fighting for equality. So of, you know, who's the greatest of all time on the women's side? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's interesting. And I, I just learned this relatively recently, to be honest, somebody pointed it out to me. The woman didn't turn pro. Very few did anyway. There were only a few. So the women really from the beginning of modern tennis have been playing kind of in a continuum. The men have not. So many of them went off. Pancho Gonzalez, Laver, Rosewall missed over a decade of opportunities, all that kind of stuff. So that. The men are hard. The woman, I think you can probably make a pretty good case to compare across not just generations, but, you know, half centuries and all that. And I think if you're looking at that overall impact on the sport, you know, it's tough because Serena, as you know, opened the game up with other communities as well, just by her success and her presence. Financially. And her capability and the financial success as well and what she symbolized. But she wasn't the pioneer. That was Althea and Arthur and people like that in our country. And, in, and also globally. So, you know, I'm tempted. I'm a big Navratilova fan. I grew up watching Martina on TV as a kid with my mom. She was incredible. Just the, she, not everybody loved her. And obviously she was way ahead of the society's curve, you know, being um, homosexual at a time when that was not accepted. She got no endorsements. I, I don't think she gets the credit she deserves still personally in terms of the great debate. And 
so many titles, so right. much consistency, doubles as well, phenomenal player. And when she was at her best, she was Serena like dominant, I would say, and played, you know, not quite as long as successfully as Serena consistently, but a darn long time. And she started early as well. So my nod would go to Martina just because of all that she represents and the overall arc of her career. What I can say from having watched a lot of tennis over the years is I'm convinced that in any era at their peak, Serena at her peak against anybody at their peak, Serena wins that match. I, I'm just, I don't have a lot of doubt about that. But you look at Serena's overall numbers, the number one totals, the number of tournament victories, which is I think close to half of what Navratilova and Everett had, a different tour then of course. It's become a slam centric world. She has achieved all she, you know, so much in that world. But that wasn't the kind of bar that Martina and Chris and Margaret Court and Billy Jean were trying to clear. It's, it was a different sort of perception then of the slams. They weren't everything. They've become everything. But I, I just, I know Serena as a, as a force, as a player, as an improving tactician, she would have taken them all out. I have no doubt. So as we look at impact though, would you go with, you know, because who would you go with? Would you go with the things that Billy did to move forward uh, compared to the things that Serena you know, the way Serena moved the game forward, right? Not necessarily anything that she sort of intentionally did. What do you think had the greatest impact? The steps that Billy, and and, and it's not a comparison. It's just, I'm just yeah. curious because, you know, you, you kind of, you were involved in both eras. Serena through her faith, I think has natural reserve on a lot of things, politics in particular and things of that nature. She does tend to step back because of her faith, I think, and the way she uh, was raised. Um, she is just by her presence and the things she gets involved in has a huge impact. But I think you have to go with Billie Jean in terms of just formative for the tour, groundbreaking stuff for women in sport, has remained a constant presence through time. Her own sort of um, human rights issues that she's addressed and, and approached and gone after consistently. She's tenacious and she doesn't let go. So I, I think you have to go with Billie Jean in, in that department. I don't know what you think, but that's my view. Yeah, you know, I think it's hard to compare. I think that um, obviously if, if Billie hadn't done what she did and Serena wouldn't have had to do what she did. Um, and I think that, you know, Billy doing what she did while she was playing makes it, you know, even harder, right. To sort of play and to step off the court and fight, you know, so I, I'm a, I'm gonna give the nod to Billy on that one. Um, but you know, in just a commercial society, right. The game wasn't as commercialized, you know, then as it is now, I think Serena in the commercial era, you know, totally, totally increased the revenue for the women. Right. And she's the reason why these girls make more money today. And the thing is, too, Kamal, you know this as well. I get the sense from talking to people I travel around the world just like you do, and I've, my wife's French and my kids are multilingual and have grown up in a lot of different places. And I think Serena has transcended women's sports. She's just a great athlete. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm sorry to say, but that's hard to do. Mm -hmm. still. And I think a lot of people just don't qualify her anymore. She has gotten to that point where, and obviously she's on the decline now. We'll see what ends up happening. But I mean, I think she was got to be one of the first tennis players and women's ath female athletes to really transcend that where we didn't talk about gender as much. Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
All right, this is the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray, and we are here with Cliff Cleary, um, world-famous writer um, of the New York Times, uh, one of the quote-unquote good guys of the industry. Um, so, Chris, I got a question for you. You know, if, if I was a writer, and, you know, right now we live in a, in a world where we measure impressions, right? How many people read your articles? How many people click? Tennis isn't one of those sports where if I was a writer and I wanted to sort of, you know, get the most clicks, get the most reads, go with the most attractive personalities. I'm not sure I'd choose tennis. I probably would choose basketball, football, or some of the more mainstream sports just because they're more most popular. Why did you choose to, you know, write, write about tennis, you know, to the degree that you have versus the other sports? Well, I'm what, I'm 56. I grew up as a kid in the tennis boom. I mean, I grew up, my first memories of watching sport are, yeah, I remember watching basketball and in the NFL for sure. But I also remember watching uh, Jimmy Connors in 74 and Chrissy Everett. And then Navratilova came along. Those are my memories of it early on. And my mother was a recreational player and a passionate one. So in our house, that was, that was a, a sport on TV. You know, Bud Collins was talking away and mom used to get mad at his analogies and his metaphors and his nicknames, but you know, he brought life to the game. So that, that was my, my childhood growing up with a ten, in a tennis household. So that's the beginning of it. And the other thing is, you know, I met and fell in love with a woman from Paris, from France, and I traveled after I finished college overseas. And I spent, you know, 14 years living full time in France and Spain, and I'm still over there a lot. And tennis in the American landscape that you and I have seen in recent years has certainly lost some of its primacy and its, and its popularity. But overseas, it is still in a lot of countries, the number two sport or the number three sport, a lot of European countries and Australia still has huge residents culturally. And those are places that I was going to, and you could feel all that. So it might not have felt central in our country, except for U.S. Open time or Wimbledon, maybe. But in other parts of the world, especially France, where I spent a lot of time, um, it's huge. And, you know, it's Keep has the French Sports Daily over there has at one time had nine tennis writers on its staff. And they were putting in two or three pages of tennis coverage every day in a general interest publication. So it depends on your vantage point. And I and I'm. I've become through my family and my own interests in I'm pretty global in the way I approach things. So for me, tennis is a fantastic global individual sport. I mean, you got players from all the continents. It's a, uh, it's a game where the surface and the, the settings change from place to place and it's very international. So I was drawn to it for that reason too. But you touched on the fact that, yeah, you were introduced to it in the States, but you really got to appreciate this popularity overseas. And I always talk about, it's interesting when I look at, you know, guys like Monfils and guys like Songer. If they were raised in the States, they wouldn't be tennis players, mm. right? Yeah. If Kyrgios was raised in the States, he wouldn't be a tennis player. And so what do you think we have to do in America to get tennis to be viewed as a number one or two sport as it is overseas, right? And, you know, the, the Keyshawn Johnson, the Calvin Johnsons, like, those guys that you like, man, if he pick up a tennis racket, he would just be the, the greatest ever. What do you think we can do or have to do to sort of get tennis to be the way it is in Europe? Yeah, and I think also it's interesting. To, it's a great question. I think I'd argue that Federer and Nadal wouldn't have been tennis players in our country either. They were also tremendously talented young athletes who would have gravitated to something else probably because they would have been pulled into that microcosm early on. You know that. I've asked that question of a lot of people, a lot of USTA player development directors over the years, going back to Doug McCurdy back in the day about how you do that. And Doug had been overseas like me for a long time when he came back to run the USTA program. You know, it's tricky. I think people like yourself, 
and your ability to bring the sport to people who are not necessarily exposed to it routinely in our in our sport. You know, it's been a it's more of a a game that has gravitated to the upper middle classes and middle classes in the U.S. traditionally, and it's um, I think to have different communities exposed to it from an early age because let's face it if you want to be a great tennis player you got to start pretty early you can't start at 12 or 13 it's just not going to happen no matter how great an athlete you are so that that's what it required and in the u.s i noticed from being back here more i live north of boston when i'm not in europe and it's basically if you are a talented athlete you are pulled in to those team sports at such an early age that it becomes almost an inevitability so if you want to be a tennis player in these communities you've got to almost fight the current to decide you're going to be a tennis player mm-hmm. whereas you want to be a lacrosse player or a basketball player or a baseball or football player or soccer you're going to get pulled in very naturally so tennis has got to find a way to become back in the current again and be very selective and strategic in how they do that and i think also you know frankly not that my book is any solution to anything but people need to understand the stories of people like federer and nadal and monfils and songa if you will understand their path what they mm-hmm. did how they made those choices, what made them great. And the more you know, you know, it's like when I was a kid reading Sports Illustrated in the stacks of the library, that's why I got to be a sports writer. I was in there reading about these people and, and I wanted to tell those stories too. And if I was a great athlete, I would have wanted to be those people. So you need to have find a way to get into those in people's hearts and minds with these stories. And, and it's hard because, as you know, the NFL and the sports in the U.S. take up all the air and space. It's hard to find any, any room to get any purchase as you try to get that grip. But you don't, but the last thing I'll say is you don't need 25 or 30 Monfils and Sangha, you need one or two. Right. So if you can get a couple of those guys, or a couple of those women who are starting at sport to gravitate to it with that ability, like a Coco Goff kind of player, somebody like that, somebody who's a tremendous athlete and uh, has got that drive. That's all you really have to have for tennis to remain front and center in the U.S. But we got work to do, especially on the men's side, it seems. You know, I think that you touched on two things, right? Number one, time. I think one of the things that hurts our game is because it is so global, the time change hurts us as it relates to TV, hmm. right? Like you're going to wake up super early and watch Australia or we're in Beijing or Wuhan or wherever it is. People are asleep. And so, and those are, those are mandatory events, you know what I mean? And so a lot of the time difference, I think, hurts us as it relates to people seeing it on TV and viewing it as something that's more popular. Hmm. I think the second thing I think that hurts us is only one person gets to win. And in general, you only really get to hear one or two people talk, right? You get to hear the, the finalists talk a little bit and then you hand the microphone to the champion. And I think if you got 128 draw and one person gets to speak, it's going to take us years to get to know uh, Muhova or Sabalenka or, you know, all these people. And so we almost can't grow personalities in the game because we really only give the microphone to the person that wins, mm-hmm. right? And there's just not enough winners. So I almost think that as a sport, we should just pay writers to write about tennis all year long, right? And so not just during the U.S. Open Series when we're clearly on U.S. time and everybody's awake and, you know, the, the, the matches are, you know, conveniently timed when people are at home watching dinner, but pay guys to come with us to Beijing and Wuhan and Osaka, Japan, and pay guys to like come do this and like really pump the sport up to sort of keep it mainstream in the States, even when we're not in the States. And it's almost, if we're going to grow the sport, we almost may want to consider that as an investment. That's interesting. I have to say, I come at it from a journalistic perspective and I understand the sentiment that you're saying, 
for me, you know, as a New York Times guy, we have very strict ethics policies that are there for a reason. Whatever we cover, we pay for. Whatever we do, we fall. And that's because we're trying to judge across the spectrum what is newsworthy. And I think if tennis gets that coverage, deservedly so, from major publications like The Times or Wall Street Journal or whatever it is, then it's got more power and it's totally legitimate. What you're talking about could work. And you see stuff like that happening now with WTA having its own bloggers and the ATP having its own bloggers, people that are part of that ecosystem that are not technically journalists in the objective sense. They're on the payroll of these places. Mm. And that's okay. That's some, that fills that sort of need. The NFL has those, the NBA, everybody else too. But if you want mainstream traditional media, or I'd say even, you know, people who are blogging, who are independent, I think it's important that you keep that independence to come out only because I think that allows, if they write good stuff, it's truly good. It's coming from, you know, an objective observation has power. And if it's negative, you know, I'm sorry, but that's part of a, the job of a journalist to be a watchdog <laughs> and have scrutiny. So you have to take the good and the bad. So I, that's my journalistic perspective, but I understand the sentiment. So, you know, we talked about the, the positive and the negative. So what do you think about uh, players now and their reaction to media or looking to skip media and the interaction between the players and media now? What, what, do, you, what do you make of that? I mean, I have my views as a coach, right? And, um, you know, we very famously heard, um, you know, one of the most popular uh, chair umpires talk to Kyrgios a couple of years ago at the U.S. Open. And was like, hey, Nick, you know, play. The world is watching you. We want you to be, right? And we learned, and, and Roger said it great. Your guy, he said, a conversation can change a mindset. And as a coach, when you send a player into their press room, pre-tournament, a conversation, a question can change a mindset. And as someone that gets paid and depends on the player's mindset, I have my tug of war with pre-tournament press, uh, types of questions that are asked and by whom, the spirit of the question. So what do you think about, you know, Osaka's recent, um, you know, sort of opting out of press, right? And she's, first of all, she's probably the most popular person to do it, but a lot of players would rather pay the fine and come to press. What do you, what do you think about that relationship and how we can improve it? And the media landscape has changed immeasurably, Kamal, since we were young and, um, and even more since I was young. But the fact of it is, you know, it's um, this has been an issue throughout tennis sometimes, whether somebody who loses a match should have to come into press. I was reading an article with Johan Creek, who was winning back in the early 80s, you know, winning tournaments and talking about he didn't think he'd have to come in after he lost a match because it wasn't good for anybody. So it's not a new debate in that sense. But what has totally changed is the landscape now that athletes can basically go above traditional media, right, especially at a certain level of popularity and a certain level of celebrity go above the heads of the whole system and just go directly to the people with their social media or their sponsors and, and send the message they want to send. But that's kind of what it is though. It's the message that they want to send. And that to me is not as a journalist, what's my goal every day. And in this book, it was the same trying to get as close to the truth as I can, you know, without compromising my journalistic integrity and my objectivity. Do I get close all the time? No, but I try. But the situation with the interchange with the media and, and athletes, it can be tough at times. But I think what's important is that you have people who cover a sport regularly, as you said before, in my view, not on the payroll, people who cover it uh, regularly, and they understand the players. And if they ask a tough question, they're going to be there again the next day. And that player is going to remember that tough question. So you're going to think twice about how you phrase that question, because if you want Sloan Stevens or Serena Williams to answer your next question the next day, you need to have a working rapport. So there's a natural check and balance there. 
in this sort of splintered media age in which we are now, people can be coming from anywhere on a Zoom call or in a press conference room and you will never see them again. And they can ask some crazy question without any bedside manner. And then they're out of there. And the people who cover the sport day to day, you know, pay a certain price for that. I think questions, curiosity, um, holding people accountable, all that's very important, but there's a way to do it and a consistent presence that guarantees that it'll be done, I think, fairly and with a certain perspective that has been lost a bit now. You know, let's try to restore that. We need more people covering tennis in the US consistently for that to happen. And in terms of Naomi, that's a really tough one because you know, that situation arose, I think it surprised a lot of people in the game, not just journalists, but people at the top of the game, obviously from the way it was handled at the French Open. My view is you need a rule that applies to everybody, whether you're a superstar or you're not. Look at Roger Federer. You know, I'm not sure he always enjoyed it. It seemed like he made the best of it, but he's given interviews in three languages for 20 plus years after all of his matches and doing a fair number of TV engagements and one-on-one -on -one interviews on the side as well. And also being involved in the political side on the ATP. So that's a lot of commitment. So if I'm a young player, Osaka's still pretty young, that could be a role model for me. Chris Everett, Billie Jean King, Martina, those guys helped build and make the tour prosper. They did it by engagement. Now I agree things have changed. We're not as central as journalists anymore to the conversation as we used to be because of social media. But we still play a very important role. And that is you are the objective voice of the public or the view of the public asking legitimate questions that might be points of contention in a match. And they also give players a chance to explain things that happen. Like the other day, Coco Vandeweghe had a situation in a warm-up where she was not even trying and social media was going crazy saying, what a horrible, you know, petulant thing to do. And then Coco comes out and explains that she was suffering from heat stroke and it was her way to conserve energy. You can argue the details, but there's always more to the story. No follow-up questions, no chance to kind of dig into those things. A lot of confusion is created from that. And I think it's important for players to understand from an early age, it's, it's a symbiotic thing. That's what journalism and, and coverage is. Well, I think we need the coverage for sure to grow the sport, right? We need the impressions. We need this. We need the tennis to be talked about more often. But you said something. You said, um, you know, your job as a journalist is to get to the truth, right? But do you feel that when you're a journalist and you're asking a question, what you're really doing is, and you write about it, you're writing your view. Right, it's your view of the truth versus an athlete that chooses to put something out on social media. That's kind of their truth, right? If they're able to articulate it very clearly on their own medium, their platform, that's kind of, hey, I feel like this, right? That's sort of the truth uh, where perhaps if, you know, an interviewer or a writer writes, what they're really writing is their view or their interpretation of the answer and what's behind the answer. So. You know, is it really your job to write the truth or is it just you to write your view? Because the truth is should come from the source. Right. And so well, now it's my it's my view. My approach it depends on my job. If I'm a columnist at my paper, then you're more giving a take on things. But you still need to have your take based in something. It's not just some wild take. You're trying to get close to the truth and then make extrapolated ideas or points of view from that from that truth that you are managing to get close to in your mind. Mm -hmm. But if you're a regular reporter, which I have been for a lot of my career, I mean, just the very nature of asking a question or ordering a newspaper article or an internet article, it's always subjective in that sense. What you choose to start with, who you choose to quote, how you go through the article, it's inevitably got a certain amount of subjectivity in it. But you're trying to give a balanced perspective. If somebody criticizes somebody, you give the person that's being criticized a chance to respond. Somebody makes an accusation, you try to give a chance to the accusation to be put out there and, and answered to. So 
there is a certain science to it as well, Kamal, I would say if it's done properly. I'm not sure the public in general or even the athletes understand that distinction, but it is there. But you're right, of course, for athletes, and you see that in stuff like you know, Player Tribune, these things that came out where the athletes get a chance to really tell a story. But we both know a lot of those are written with people as well. They aren't just the athlete doing it themselves and writing like F. Scott Fitzgerald, man. It's <laughs> I know some of the athletes that are writing and, you know, they're writing isn't their thing and they sound amazing in these things. So there's a little yeah. bit of that too. It goes on, but I think inevitably social media is not going anywhere. Instagram is not going anywhere, at least for the next, you know, foreseeable future. So athletes are going to be able to use that medium for sure. And they will continue to do so. But I think there still is a role, you know, for the people's emissaries, if you will, and journalists to play a significant role in you know, giving legitimate coverage, but, you know, the world is changing. We will see where we are a few years from now. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So last question. I know you've been very generous with your time. Last question is, what do you think we can do to, you know, sort of encourage a continued relationship with independent journalists, right? Now that we have social media, you know, athletes may feel like they don't need the relationship, right? Because they can, you know, put their message out. But I think we do need sort of that independence, right? And sort of that skilled writing to narrate some stories. Um, you know, one of the things that I've just sort of grappled with is, should we provide questions? Should we screen questions? Since you write, in tennis especially, the questions are coming from all over the world, right? Some could be coming from people who are in bed with betters, right? And sort of trying to sort of manipulate uh, a player's mindset. What do you think we could do to improve the relationship? Should we screen the questions? you know, give the questions to the players a day ahead of time, you know, so that they do sound better when they're answering them and they can be a better steward and seller of the sport. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think? Well, that's not my job, Kamal, but people are coaches. I can see why it would be destabilizing. And people who are in the, the leagues, if you will, the WTA and the ATP, the equivalent of the leagues in tennis, that's what media training is. And I, you know, I don't have a problem with people doing that on the side, trying to understand the dynamics the kind of questions that could be asked in your situation. I mean, a lot of times it's not a surprise that something's happened along the way. If you coach, you kind of know the question's coming. So that's yeah, how you, you double fall 10 times. You're going to say, hey, you're going to ask that? your question about double fault, right? Yeah, I remember, you know, when, during Sloan's time, after she won the U.S. Open, she had a tier period where she had a hard time winning a match. That's going to come up. And that can be a negativity that feeds on the negativity. I recognize as a coach, that's a challenge. And as an athlete, to me, that's part of being in the kitchen. You're going to take some of that. If it's done professionally and it's not in any way malicious, it's just trying to understand the dynamic. Okay, and just like with Naomi Osaka, there was a whole lot more to that story than anybody knew, or at least that I knew at the time. But you know, answering questions about playing on clay at the French Open, if it's not your best surface, to me, that kind of comes with the challenge. I think that's okay. I think we should be able to ask those questions and professionally and with respect and, and either get an answer or a no comment. But you know, I think in terms of what can make it better, I, I would say, what is a professional independent journalist? If somebody who works at a place where there is oversight, there are checks and balances, there are fact checkers, there are people who hold those journalists accountable within their own organization. And there used to be loads of those, including many in Chicago, where you spent a lot of time. It was one of the great newspaper cities in the world. 
And the industry has been decimated by economics of it all and this transition to the internet and to uh, you know free access media. I think we're gonna rebuild it again in a different form. So I think you need to find a way to you know, limit a lot of the uh, press conference uh, groups and interview people and interview groups to legitimate journalists. You don't bring in people from betting sites who have an interest in trying to you know, alter the odds or move different directions. You don't want to bring people in who are just basically fans that are not in any way trying to do a professional job and, and an objective job of covering the sport. Up to the, it's up to the WTA who's on those conference calls. It's up to the ATP who gets into, the, into an ATP event. It's up to the USTA who gets into the US Open to cover in a position to ask questions. And frankly, I think the bar needs to be a little bit higher. And I think that would, that would be a good start. I am never gonna advocate that journalists should be providing their sources and athletes with the, with the questions ahead of time. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the way to do it. I don't think journalists should be helping athletes in this process. It should be a legitimate interchange. And um, I think there are improvements that can be made on both sides of that equation. Mm. Well, Chris, that, um... I appreciate your perspective. Obviously, I always enjoy this because, you know, as a coach, we always are preparing the player. Hey, when you get in there, then we're certainly going to ask this. Right? Mm. And, and here's what you say. Um, and, you know, the goal is to just protect the player's mindset. Uh, and I feel at times sort of conflicted because I feel like it's just like a handful of guys that write about tennis uh, and that care about tennis. And, you know, if you care about tennis, you want to, protect the personalities, protect the players, protect their, their mindset and their confidence so that they can be the person that carries this sport and, and oftentimes elevates it. You know what I mean? So, but now I haven't worked for TC. I get, I get the need for some independence, some ability to ask tough questions, but also, you know, still not crush someone. Um, but I appreciate your perspective. You know, you're always, like I said, always very thoughtful. Uh, I'm looking forward to re- reading the book. Uh, Roger is, you know, one of my favorites. I remember the first time where I was walking down uh, at Wimbledon on the other side of the All England Club where they, they drop you off at the transport. And I walked past Roger. He didn't look up at me. And he said, hey, how's it going to come out? And I was like, I like kept walking. Like, did he just call me by my first name? Um, <laughs> and ever since then, it's just been, it's been that, right? And so, um, you know, but it wasn't with a smile. It wasn't with a lot of energy. Um, so I, I look forward to reading your book. Because uh, I see him as very even, you mm. know, and I'm sure you've got some stories having followed him a lot closer than than most of us have the opportunity to do so. Uh, so I'm looking forward to it. Now, I've never read a 400 page book. <laughs> so I, give me about a year and I'll provide you my take on it. <laughs> well, let's, let's call it your first marathon. Just, just yeah. start running <laughs> and see when you really want to stop. And if you got to stop, you got to stop. But I got to ask you one question, if you don't mind. Yeah. You know, I haven't written this thing. I interviewed over 80 people for the book itself. Obviously interviewed people for, for years in the process of preparing for it. And the one question I, I asked people a lot, I, I got a lot of varied answers on it. I'd be curious how you'd respond to it as a coach is what do you think Roger's legacy to the game of tennis, the playing of the game will be? Or, or what is it now? What do you see in the way he has played? Forget all the off court stuff that will last and have an impact or already has had an impact. Um. So I think when you think about a sort of a prototypical, like a prototype, you know, I think Roger is that, right? Sort of the sexiness of the way he swings. We've seen like Grigor try to imitate it, right? Which you can never come close. Um, I think the grace in which he moves 
uh, I think, you know, in a very um, discreet manner, move the physical. I mean, you know, Nadal in a very intentional manner just looks physical, right? It has increased the physicality of the game. Roger, when you get up on him, I mean, that's a big dude, right? But he doesn't, he doesn't look big on TV. So I think he's increased the physicality of the game, the way he's having to defend the one-hand backhand. Uh, I do think that when I look at Roger, I look at his game, right? And as a coach, I personally do not teach a one-hand backhand. Mm-hmm. And I try to discourage people from trying to hit a one-hand backhand because I think the game continues to get more and more physical. The balls get heavier, the bounces get higher. And I feel like that is the one thing that will make this a three-way conversation about the GOAT versus a one-way. If he didn't have a one-hand backhand, I think he's, he's the greatest by a landslide. Mm. I think he wins the French more than he, you know, more than he has. I think he doesn't lose to Novak as much. I think he doesn't have as much trouble with Rafa. I think the most beautiful thing about his game unquestionably is the backhand. But I also think that that's the one thing that has prevented him from separating himself from the other two. Mm-hmm. So that's just my take, right? And people disagree with me. You know, if you're 6'5", or like Riley Opelka or Chris Eubanks, yeah, you're tall enough perhaps to take to hit a one-hand backhand because you can handle a high bounce. You know, or a bull, a bull like Vavrinka who could hit the ball up here with all that upper body strength and just destroy it anyway. Exactly. But I do think that from a tennis standpoint, he is has the sexiest game alive uh, ever, that will ever be played. But I do think um, what would have been and what could have been had he had two hands on the backhand. Mm-hmm. I but think, you would have kept, I assume, that, that deadly one-handed slice that just dies and drives all the two-handers nuts, right? Because they can't. Oh, oh I mean, you know. Yeah, he could have had a two hand and then a nice one hand chip. You know, you see some of the young guys now with solid two hand and then a one hand chip. Um, But I would say that that's if I had to critique his game, which I have no place to critique one of the greatest ever. I would just say that's the one thing that stands out to me is the what if around the what if conversation around his one hand. Mm. So that's just my take, you know, but who am I? But it's, but it's interesting, that legacy question about the game itself was surprisingly hard for people to answer. I think because some of the things about him are not replicable. You can train your footwork and you can train uh, the way you move around the court and your flexibility, but to move like him, I think that's innate in a lot of ways. It also comes from all those sports that he played as a kid. And the other thing, which is really interesting, and I don't you know how you feel about it as a coach, but the guy has vision and he always seems to have extra time. I read about this in the book. Mm-hmm. And people talk about that great athletes like a Jordan or a Lionel Messi, they have a little more time or they give the impression that they do. And why is that? Mm-hmm. And it kind of comes down in, in people's minds that I talk to, to processing speed. They take mm-hmm. all the input. They can make it all make sense instinctively and quickly, mm-hmm. faster than the average player, average pro player. Mm-hmm. And so it gives them that impression of time. Mm-hmm. So I think, can you replicate that? No. So the things about Rogers game that, that he did on the court between the lines, I think they're hard to copy. Well, let me just challenge you here because, you know, we talked about how Rafa, when he's moving fast, he looks like he's moving fast, right? And I think that you can sort of train people to see the ball earlier and hear the ball earlier. Mm. I think there is training you can do with the eyes, right? At between 75 and 85 feet, I mean, 78 and 85 feet to pick up the ball earlier. Mm -hmm. I think there's training you can do with the ears. All right, a lot of people underestimate 
the importance of the sound, right? Mm -hmm. And judging the sound of the ball off of the strings. And I think that, you know, just from a, a, a Roger is probably the most graceful of the three. Um, and I think they're all equally as fast. But I think the edge and why Roger makes it look so easy is because I think his hearing and his eyesight are supreme to the other two. Mm. The other two look like they are trying harder because they don't have the natural sight and sound, right? The ability to judge sight and sound mm. of the ball. He yeah. has that, which, yeah. which are transferable. So, and, and I think that with technology today, I think you could train a kid. If you started that training right now, you could train a kid to learn to pick up an object between 78 and 85 feet away from them, mm -hmm. right? You could train a kid to sort of zone out and listen to the spin, the, the clunk of the ball on the strings to maybe buy them some time, especially if you given the fact, Chris, that this sport in America is primarily played by the, by the country's worst athletes. Mm -hmm. The people who play tennis most oftentimes are the rich kid that didn't make the basketball team, didn't make the football team, didn't make the baseball team. So the rich daddy bought them some tennis lessons. If we are going to make that kid to be a good tennis player to the level where they can compete with a Monfils or a Sanga or Casper Rude, we've got to start taking some of those dollars that are available for that rich kid from the country club and also taking and investing them in their eyesight and their hearing. Mm -hmm. to help make up for the lack of athleticism that caused them not to make the team in those other sports. And I think well, ultimately, if you're, if you're going to have a champion, a champion champion, you're going to yes. need to take that great athlete and give them the tools you're talking about. That yes. Maybe not processing speed fully, but processing tools that allow them to process that stuff quicker. So, yep. yeah. And I also it's, think that's that, fascinating. That's an, that's an article waiting to be written right there. All right. And I also think that's why Roger, when you look at his, his, um, his press conferences, his ability to hear what you're saying is different than the others. Mm. To listen, hear, to process, and to like calmly reply. I think that talks about, and that's an, an indicator of his, just his supreme, you know, just the way he just can hear things, right? Mm. And hears the ball and sees what's going on. So I think those gifts are hard to kind of put your finger on. You know, probably were not trained early on, but it's just, He's got a God-given gift that us as tennis players, you know, only those that are like watching, like, wow, he's really not that fast. And it doesn't look like he's trying. It looks like he's always there. It looks like he knew where the ball was coming. Mm -hmm. And I think as a coach, when I sit back, I'm like, man, he just sees it. Yeah. And he not only sees it, but he hears it. Right. And I haven't thought of the hearing. I never thought of it. Yeah. So that's 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 my opinion, right? Uh you should have so, talked before I finished that chapter, Kamal. This is killing me. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Chris, thank you so much, man. It's always good chatting with you. Uh, we'll have to do this again. After I you know, take a year to finish your book, I have to come back on and, uh, <laughs> and argue with you. I'm sure you got something there I disagree with. <laughs> yeah, I tried to keep it tight, but you know, it was 20 plus years. What do you want? You got, you got, you know, it's a long era. Yeah. All right, Chris, I appreciate you. Good luck with the book. Uh, this has been the Tennis.com podcast. I am your host, Kamal Murray, and we've just had you know, a great chat with Chris Cleary. Uh, who has a, a new book coming out, um, looking at the career of Roger. I'm sure he's not going to be, he's going to be disappointed with the fact that you thought he was closer to the end. That's why you chose to write about him. Uh, well, knowing him, will go five more years now. He'll prove me I know, wrong. Just because you said he can't. Whole career. There you go. Just because you said. Well, thank you for your time, man. I will see you soon. Okay, Kamal. All thank the best. You.